Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined as always by Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, Bill Galston of the Wall Street Journal and the Brookings Institution, Damon Linker of the Week, and our special guest this week is David French. The uh, wh- what should we say about you, Dave? Well, you're one of the founders, I guess, of the um, of the Dispatch. You are an essayist for Time. You are a former um, presidential candidate. <laughs> well, really? not really. Almost. Uh, Earth 2, you're <laughs> president of the United States. All right. And good friend. Um, David has a new book out that um, I I could say I read over the weekend, but it would be more accurate to say I inhaled. Uh, it, it, it's, it speaks to me and, and I think to all of us. So we will get to that in a few minutes, but we're going to start with the debate. Um, I typed it out as the debase uh, because that's probably closer uh, to what happened Tuesday night, the debasing of our democracy. Um, But uh, I I totally agree with JVL who said that the, the, the common take that both sides behaved badly and that it was a, some sort of a equal matchup of horribleness is completely wrong. Uh, it was very one-sided, but I have to turn to you first, Linda. It actually gave you heart palpitations? It was, I mean, this is embarrassing to talk about because it was so uh, unusual. I was sitting watching the debate alone in a dark room I have an Apple Watch, which notifies me if my heartbeat gets up over a certain level. Well, in this case, my heart started going during the debate to 155 beats per minute, which is, you know, like you're exercising or something. So then I hit the little EKG button on my Apple Watch and took an EKG. Well, it wouldn't take the EKG until I literally had to lie prone and get my heartbeat down to 120. It was actually 117 I got it down, at which point it registered that I was in atrial fibrillation, and that went on for two hours. Um, I probably should have called my doctor. Yes. But I mean, I'm part of a a longitudinal study on aging uh, uh, in Baltimore, the Baltimore Baltimore Longitudinal Study of Aging, one of the biggest, longest uh, longitudinal studies ever done. And I get these very, very extensive tests on my heart. And it's always been the organ that functioned best in my body. I mean, it's always been in really good shape, never looked like a heart of a 70-year-old. So I wasn't really worried that I was going to have a heart attack. But I'll tell you what happened. What happened was watching Donald Trump rage caused me to experience rage. And Mona, you've known me more than 35 years. Have you ever heard me scream or even really raise my voice in that time? Never. Never. Uh, My kids will tell you that there were a couple of times when I went into their rooms and there were a disaster that I did in fact yell at them. But I'm not, (laughs) I just, I'm not somebody who loses my temper. I just Mm -hmm. don't. 
And what happened, it was like it was catching. I, I, I felt like a battered woman. I felt mm. like Trump was coming into the room and I felt like I had to cower in the corner, that I was a captive, that I couldn't get away. And I would have turned it off and walked away, except that I had agreed with to do uh, a response in the New York Times. So it was like, you know, I couldn't walk away. I had to listen. Right. right. It was the most emotionally upsetting experience of anything other than, you know, the death or loss of, of a close friend or family member. It was traumatic. This man is a danger to the Republic and he is a danger to all of our lives. And I never lived to see the day that I said, if this man is elected, I really do feel that I will have to either withdraw entirely from public life, or I will have to leave. I just do not think I could live another four years under Donald Trump. Okay, Bill Galston, um, you, I'm going to assign you something that you cannot fulfill, which is I want you to cheer us up. Um, I, I, I know you, um, you follow the polls very closely. Um, I am going to speculate that Linda's reaction, while extreme, was not that uh, much of an outlier for women, that women respond particularly badly to seeing this side of Donald Trump. What, what can you report to us about what you've been able to find out just so far? The debate can be judged in a variety of different ways. You know, let me, you know, let me distinguish the aesthetic from the emotional and the emotional from the political. Uh, you know, aesthetically, it was repellent. Emotionally, it was traumatic. Politically, uh, it may have been the second to last nail in Donald Trump's coffin. You know, I've spent the past six hours or so, you know, uh, looking at all of the post-debate surveys and focus groups. And the reaction is, is universal. You're right. Far more negative among women than among men. Uh, but I think anybody lining up all of the polls and all of the fo focus groups would have to conclude that Trump harmed himself. He further diminished his chances of winning the election. Uh, Biden had to hold steady. And in fact, he did a little bit better than that. He didn't shine by himself, but in comparison to Trump, he stood out uh, as a bastion of common sanity. And some people criticized him for calling the president of the United States a clown. I actually gave him credit for self-restraint when I did that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because my thoughts at that particular moment were far worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a lot of people enjoyed it, you know, when Biden said, won't you please, won't you just shut up? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because As Charlie I, Sykes said he spoke for millions at that point. <laughs> yeah. And so, <laughs> and so I, I was in shock through the debate. Uh, my, my, my wife was gripping my hand so hard, I thought she would draw blood. Uh, 
I, you know, I had to spend an enormous amount of time reassuring her as best I could. But when she asked me, how do you think the American people are responding to this? It is a measure of how traumatized I've been by the past four years that I couldn't give her an answer in which I had any confidence at all. Uh, and I've been greatly encouraged uh, by the evidence of the past 24 hours that the American people have not been completely corrupted by this president, that they've retained what might be call, called moral common sense and a fair amount of human decency. And that's the way they responded to the president, thank God. Damon, the um, Nielsen ratings were down something like 11% or some such number um, from 2016, but that could be misleading because they cannot measure how many people were live streaming it. I was live streaming it myself. Um, so uh, many millions of people witnessed this. And, and one of the things that strikes me is that people like us um, who are constantly bombarded day after day, minute after minute, with all of Trump's outrages, um, neglect to consider that for the average voter and the average citizen, they hear things and then they hear other things and they don't know what's true. And, you know, some people say Trump's a racist or that he did something and somebody else says, no, no, the press misreported that. And so they shrug it off. I know at least one relative who says, oh, you know, they're all, li I said, you know, the lying, oh, they're all liars. But this is why I have been looking forward to the debates, actually, because um, it is an opportunity for people who don't pay attention but who are now focusing because the election is already going on and, and election day is just weeks away, who are now focusing and can see with their own eyes um, what we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, I, my, all of my instincts as I watched uh, this travesty uh, the other night were that this cannot possibly be doing anything but harm to Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I don't know how many uh, Republicans will flee from him because of what they saw. I'm sure some, especially men who have always liked him, probably got a big old thrill out of seeing him in action like that. But the overwhelming majority of Americans, as you say, who say don't tune in regularly to politics cannot possibly have watched that spectacle and been anything other than appalled it, because it was appalling. This was not a rally, which is bad enough when he stands before 10,000 people and as he did actually last night, Wednesday night in Minnesota and, and goaded the crowd to boo refugees that's appalling enough, but this was the actual interaction of his shtick with one of the, you know, relatively limited number of uh, rituals of American democracy, at least since the since 1960, that you have these debates and everyone shows up and they're conducted with all their ups and downs and gotcha moments as a fairly civilized exchange of disagreements about policy and visions for the future of the country. And he came out there and and acted like a, a spouse beating his wife for 90 minutes. And 
And I, as someone said earlier, I have all the respect in the world for Joe Biden for keeping his cool as well as he did. I mean, it, it, it was, you know, I half expected him to walk off the stage just in order to preserve his dignity. It was just, it was just yeah. utterly appalling. And so, you know, what do I know? When I look at 538's tracker of his, of Trump's cumulative aggregate approval, he is up. He's up to 43.9 among all people who are surveyed, <laughs> uh, which is for him up a bit. I mean, he's, of yeah. course, way underwater, but it's, it's, it's up. But then again, on the other polls that they do with their tracking for the election, he's now 7.9 behind Biden, which is, which is uh, sunken about one, one percentage point uh, from earlier in the week. So it's probably a bit of a mixed bag. And certainly I would much prefer to live in a country where a guy who did what he did that night would be at 20% in the polls, but I'll take him just losing really big. <laughs> I, 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 I have never, I have never loathed uh, this man more than I do now. And I have never come close to loathing any politician. <laughs> the way I feel for this guy after what he pulled the other night. David, um, if this had been, uh, let's say six years ago, um, and um, David French and Mona Charon were sitting down to discuss a debate against Joe Biden, you know, we would have been loaded for bear. We would have had a lot of things on our agenda we wanted to tick off to really hold his feet to the fire about the Iran deal, uh, the, the dealings with Cuba, um, the dear colleague letter that the Obama uh, Education Department issued that we felt uh, was was very unjust to those accused of uh, sexual assault and harassment, that not that anybody should get away with those things, but that there, there should be standards of proof and so on. But in this moment, uh, with this guy uh, leading the Republican Party, all of that is just blown away. Don't you agree? Yeah. I mean, there, there is a conservative case against Joe Biden. Donald Trump did not make a conservative case against Joe Biden. All he tried to do was be a bully. Mm -hmm. That's all he tried to do. And I wrote a newsletter yesterday, yesterday and, I, it, and essentially the point was the, the, the headline made it very clear. Trumpism is bullyism. At its utter core, it is bullyism. And a, a country, especially the world's greatest, world's most powerful country with uh, you know, that that is the indispensable nation uh, in maintaining our, you know, the current atmosphere of uh, great power peace that's prevailed for decade after decade, the most powerful economy in the world, the, a cultural superpower. It cannot thrive when its governing philosophy is bullyism. It simply can't. And the evidence is all around us. I mean, here we're in the middle of mass death a dramatic economic downturn that is, of course, related directly to the, the pandemic that caused the mass death. We're at a time of civil unrest. We're at a time of just plummeting sense of national well-being. And time and time again, you can point back to actions that the, this administration has taken that at every turn took admittedly difficult challenges and made them worse. And so I'm just over the argument that you keep hearing, oh, this is just about style. 
I mean, I've even heard that objection about the debate. This is just about style. Wait a minute. You know, style implies substance as well, as we all knew before the Trump administration. Words are substance uh, when you are president of the United States. And what we have seen time and time and time again with this administration is when its beating heart is the heart of a bully, it is not really interested in the business of governance. It is often interested in the business of abuse. And that is not the way you lead a country. That is not the way you conduct a presidential campaign. And I live in I live in Tennessee. I'm in a very red uh, district in Tennessee, slightly tiny bit less red than the one I lived in in 2016 in Tennessee, but still very very red. Vast majority of my friends are Trump voters, and for the first time, really in in the four years, I have heard some people say he made me so mad I don't know if I can vote for him, and. And, and the interesting thing is what I have found amongst my friends who are Trump supporters, if I had their, and, and we really try to keep our relationship free of politics um, as much as possible. I mean, but if I had their news diet, I might be a Trump supporter too. I mean, it's all of the traditional sort of elements of the conservative media entertainment complex where you get a very, very, very filtered view of Trump and a very exaggerated view of his opponents. But when you see him unfiltered, and there's one only one other time in the last four years I've heard that same sentiment, and it was at the height of the pandemic press conferences, where they were just watching him be him and didn't like what they saw. And I don't know that it will alter the fundamentals of the race uh, negatively towards him, but he was trailing and he had to, he had to shake it up. And if it, if it was sh- if the race was shaken up in any way, uh, on Tuesday, it was negative for him. It was not positive for him. I, I think there's no question about that, that uh, it that it hurt him uh, by how much we'll see. Um, but uh, one of the great, one of the biggest takeaways of the evening was his failure to condemn white supremacists and um, fairly so. Um to the point where, David, I saw you tweeted this. I retweeted it immediately. John Roberts, a straight down-the-line reporter at Fox News, seems like a good guy, um, had a blow-up on the air just a few minutes ago where he was in a briefing and Kaylee McEnany was doing her usual tap dance of trying to pretend uh, that the president had not done what the whole world saw him do. And he just exploded on the air. He said, yeah. stop blaming the media. Stop trying to trot out excuses. I'm sick of it. He practically threw down the microphone. Um, well, you know, what was fascinating about that, Mona, and what I think is really illustrative is, yes, Kaylee McEnany walked through these quotes where the president had issued these tepid denunciations, but he has this, and sometimes stronger than tepid, but he has this pattern. And why this keeps coming up is because he'll say, I condemn X, Y, or Z, but then when things get specific, it's then, well, it's not those guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, the, uh, uh, and right in the bulwark, one of the best pieces about the Charlottesville hoax hoax. Yes. Robert, Robert Trzynski. Tr- yeah. He said, Look, he's talking about when he said very fine people. No, he's not talking about the Saturday melee that culminated in the terrorist attack. He's talking about the Friday night Jews will not replace us rally. Exactly. And so- I'm sorry, when you say very fine people were there and then later in other parts say I condemn white supremacy, 
Uh, no. And the same with the debate. He says, sure, in response to condemn white supremacy, but then in response to Proud Boys, he says, stand back and stand by. And that doesn't, that's just flat out doesn't cut it. Well, and as our friend Jay Nordlinger pointed out in a tweet, um, you know, it isn't as if Donald Trump doesn't know how to be direct and condemn things when he wants to. <laughs> he had no trouble condemning Ilhan Omar, right? And he had no trouble having, you know, expressing his views about John McCain. He, um, he knows how to condemn when he wants to. All right. Um, if anybody else would like, yeah, Linda. So I was just going to add one thing when we were talking about the persona. Uh, last week I had mentioned as my recommendation, Bob Woodward's book, Rage. And one of the things that fascinated me about that book was the fact that he chose that as the title. Uh, but Woodward goes into lengthy descriptions of Trump in the Oval Office, his very large hulking presence storming from room to room, pacing, and literally physically intimidating the people who work for him. And when you wonder why it is that people are so afraid to speak up or to say anything, it is because of that rage. They have seen it up close and personal, and all of us got to see it on Tuesday. Interesting. And you know, the Tuesday night's rage wasn't even genuine, right? It was synthetic rage for the cameras. Imagine what it's like when it's genuine behind right. the scenes. It's much worse, I'm sure. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Um, <clears throat> does anybody want to? Um, does anybody want to mention uh, where we stand in the polling, or should we just take it as read that? Uh, According to 538, uh, Biden has something like an 80% chance of winning uh, the elections. Anybody have something that they would like to add to that before we move on to the president's taxes? Only that, you know, only that things are looking almost uniformly good for Biden in the key swing states, uh, which amazingly... Uh, now include South Carolina. A swing state or just they're not sure? Uh, well, let me put it this way. The Senate race for the third consecutive survey was a dead tie. Yeah, amazing. Between Harrison, yeah. Harrison and Lindsey Graham and the latest survey, and it's, you know, it's so gobsmacking, I don't know whether to believe it or not, has Trump up by one point over Biden in South Carolina, 48-47. Now, listen, Bill, I, I'm with Damon. I mean, it amazes me that there are, you know, that many people who support him. But all right, go on, go look, on. I talk, forgive me. And, and if you want, you know, and, and here's something to conjure with. We may wake up uh, to discover that the state of Strom Thurmond and John C. Calhoun will be represented by two African-American senators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just think about that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that would One, be. Of two um, different parties. Yeah. America <laughs> is nation. not, America is not a racist nation. <laughs> the, uh, the South one thing Carolina. I'd add to, to <laughs> Bill's point is that if South Carolina is that close, there is no such thing as a swing state. It's a landslide. Yeah, at, exactly. At that point. 
And yeah, exactly. it's, I think Which is what I've been predicting, by the way. I'm just, I, I climbed out on a limb a few weeks ago and I'm perfectly content with my posture. <laughs> the one, one quick thing I'd add is I'd say, look, there is a chance this thing could tighten considerably. There's a chance. We've sure. 30 plus days. It's a chance. There's also a chance it could go the other direction. And one of the things that I remember, well, I don't really I remember uh, learning about 1980. I was only 11 when 1980 happened. Was this thing was actually pretty close for a while, and yep. then at the very end, kind of broke open, split open. And I think it's equally possible this could split open wider as it is possible that it could narrow significantly. Um, but right now, if you took all of the states that where Biden is leading, just in, in the 538 average and gave them to Biden in all the states where Trump is leading in the 538, you know, no matter the margin, right at this moment, the electoral co college margin would be 352 Biden, 186 Trump. Uh, so he's got ground to make up unless the polls are just completely, unless it's the polling scandal of a lifetime. Mm. Can, can I, Damon, I see you. I'll come to you just uh, in a second. I just want to make a, a point about 1980 since David raised it. And I mentioned it in the piece that I wrote about the landslide. Um, I, I did not remember I was in college in 1980 and, um, or just finished. And I, and I went back and looked, uh, for, for researching this column about the polling during the whole year of 1980, because the way it has come down to us is that, you know, Jimmy Carter was such an unpopular president, such a failure. He had the hostage crisis and this and that and the other, and the economy was terrible. But actually, when you go back and you look at the polling, it was incredibly close. Um, Reagan was not ahead uh, hardly at all uh, in any of the polls. Uh, Carter had a significant and comfortable lead throughout most of 1980. Um, and... Uh, it was after that one and only debate, and it's, I'm not going to go into the reasons there was only one debate, but in any event, there was only one between Carter and Reagan. And Reagan, instead of the caricature that Carter had presented to the world, he had been telling everybody that Reagan was a frightening figure, that he was uh, going to start a third world war, that he was an actor, that he wasn't up to it. Um, Reagan had a really good debate. I went back and rewatched it. And uh, Reagan was masterful. I mean, he, he certainly compared with today, but uh, he really had his facts. He was, he was, uh, he really had his facts at his fingertips. This was, this was 1980 Reagan, a very different guy from 1988 Reagan, who was, was losing a bit. Um, and uh, anyway, it was after that debate that the country said, okay, then we are not happy about the state of the country. We are not happy about the economy and the hostage crisis and the rest. Um, and so we realize we can, we can vote for Reagan without endangering the country. And that's when this cascade of preference happened and uh, it became a landslide in Reagan's favor. That is the scenario that I have had in the back of my mind about people who are unhappy with Trump, which is a vast majority of the population, and yet worried about various things about Biden, that he might be senile, that he's not up to the job, that he might be a creature of the left and so forth. And I was thinking that the debates might help dispel some of that. It didn't quite work out that way, but something else happened that wound up probably 
helping Biden. Though, by the way, I don't think Biden did that great. We can get into that maybe. But okay, Damon, what was the point you wanted to add? Oh, we, we might be past it now. It was just a, a, pre, a brief thing about the 538 uh, kind of um, the prediction about the likelihood of Biden winning being at 80%. That is true. But it's also important to keep in mind that as we approach election day, even if the polls remain where they are, that is going to keep going up. Because if you look at, at the uh, kind of the tracking polls of who's ahead nationally between Biden and Trump, it is the steadiest thing you've ever seen. I mean, mm-hmm. Biden has been pretty much seven or so points ahead of Trump. From the beginning, there have been no moments, unlike in 2016, where they sort of approached each other. And there were a few brief moments back then when when Trump did go into the lead for a couple of days. Uh, It's nothing like that now. And um, it's one thing for it to look like that in July, another thing in September, and quite another in the last week of October. So even if they don't separate out in the way that uh, sometimes happens a break at the last minute where Biden shoots even more into the lead, uh, by the time we get to election day, if this even stays steady, uh, Biden will be very, very much favored to win big. Right. Um, just one more. Since you mentioned it, you know, another interesting thing that was in 538 this week was that they showed all of these data and gave their analysis of uh, the chances and so forth. But then they note that there's still about 50 percent of the American people. Well, no, all actually, no, most Americans believe that Trump has an even chance to win. Um and uh, that's that's an interesting thing. I don't know if that's PTSD from 2016 or what. Um, does anybody want to well, ta- I'll, tackle I'll that? Briefly yes, I'll I, be happy to come. Sorry. Yeah, can I just, I'm happy to cede to you because you know far more about this than I do, Bill. But it's funny that I anytime I write something critical of Trump, I get emails from Trump supporters who who say not only that Trump will win, I'm I'm an idiot, but he's going to win in a landslide. And mm-hmm. that, that just speaks to a kind of disconnect from reality that is that is that has absolutely no basis in anything empirical at all. I mean, it's possible he could barely win by winning the Electoral College while probably losing uh, the general, uh, general vote by millions, but there's absolutely no reason to think that he's going to win in a landslide. And yet... Some people apparently believe this. Okay, to you, Bill. Sorry. Uh, I think PTSD, especially among Democrats, is the silver bullet explanation. Mm. Uh, I you know, just just before I uh, I joined you, uh, I looked at a survey uh, where it it showed actually that fifty four percent of the respondents thought that despite everything, Trump would win the election, uh, which was interesting. But then I looked at the internals. That includes 24% of Democrats. I mean, mm-hmm. Trump is going to get no Democratic votes <laughs> to speak of, mm-hmm. but a quarter of the Democratic Party is so traumatized by 2016, they can't bring themselves to believe their candidate could win. <laughs> it's really amazing. <laughs> Yeah. No, Bill, he's going to get the votes of some Democrats. Rod Blagojevich is going to vote for Trump. <laughs> well, if I owed Trump what Rod Blagojevich owes Trump, I'd vote for him too. <laughs> All, right. All right. Moving right along. Moving right along. Um, so the um, 
believe it or not, after five years of hearing about Trump's taxes, we got quite a glimpse into them uh, from the New York Times. Um, reflections, David French. Well, I'm going to, you know, there's, it's so kind of the thing to do to say it doesn't matter. Um, but I'm going to depart from that in one sense. I, I do agree with it doesn't matter, for example, say as much as the debate performance did on Tuesday, uh, as far as sort of shaping public opinion. But here's where I think some of this stuff is going to matter. And it is if Trump goes ahead and loses, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to start to sort of spin out a narrative that says something like, if I'd only known. Uh if I'd only known, if I'd only known that he wasn't the businessman he said he was, if I'd only known that, you know, th there was a Trump con and now I see and and you're going to see a lot of this coming out it, again. This is if he goes ahead and loses, you're going to see a lot of people where they're going to be new stories that have new facts in them, but don't tell us anything new about the essence of the man. And so there's going to be a lot of this that says, oh, if I'd known that which changes nothing about Trump, but is just an additional fact that cements what we already knew, you're going, I, I guarantee you, you will see this, this uh, as other memoirs come out, as other insider accounts come out, that, that, that you'll see again, if I'd known. But I'll tell you yeah. when I do think that those ta that tax information would have mattered, when the primary was still viable, I think that tax information would have mattered. And we're seeing why he never had any intention of releasing it. Linda, um, the voters who shrugged their shoulders and said they didn't care about the tax returns uh, have a lot to answer for, right? Well, they do. But by the way, I'm not at all certain uh, that, that, that Trump does not have a kind of evil genius. I think you've described him in that way, uh, Mona. All of the talk about the tax returns simply disappeared after that debate performance. And it now you know, the New York Times, which was going to publish several, they did two uh, days of coverage on it. It's all gone away. Maybe it'll come back next week. But I think the person it matters most to is Donald Trump, because Trump has been a con man his entire life. He has built an empire on sand. And suddenly that sand has turned to quicksand and he is about to face the music if he is not elected. He has what's been estimated as, uh, as much as $421 million in loans coming due uh, in the next year or two. And given that, um, he desperately needs to stay in office. I think he's terrified about this. I think his image has been destroyed. How is he going to go out? And he, he never made money building real businesses, which some of us tried to explain in 2016. Um, all he was ever able to do was to sell his name as somebody who was successful, who lived a successful lifestyle. Well, that's going to be destroyed. Um, by these revelations. And obviously he's harmed his ability to brand things because, you know, he's offended so many people and so many different groups that, you know, nobody wants Trump's name on their condos or on their hotels or on their steaks or shirts or vodka. Um, and so I think that 
Um, I think that is one of the interesting things about um, about this whole tax story is what it does to Trump. And you may recall, I think it was last week when you we were asked, or maybe two weeks ago, you asked whether or not he should be pursued in any kind of activity after he leaves office. And I said, not for things he did in office, but I wanted to keep the tax issue uh, out there because it isn't just that he used tax loopholes, which he did. But Mona, you and I have both been on, on TV a lot as the guys on the show. I asked my accountant, if I have to have a special wardrobe uh, to go on television or I have to have my hair styled the day I go on TV or buy special makeup, is any of that tax deductible? And I was told flat out no. So he no. didn't just he didn't if you just, can wear the clothing on the street. On the street that's right. Then, it's not deductible. Yeah. And exactly. I don't know what you, well, I mean, I don't know what you say about that hair of his. For one thing, the guy who, you know, he paid seventy thousand dollars to style that that, you know, he ought to be in jail. I mean, he's been defrauding uh, his client. Um, but, you know. No, but, but Linda, the other thing is, every time you go on television, what's the first thing you do? You go in and they do your hair and makeup. Of course. For you. Of course. <laughs> the notion that he was also Brilliant. had his own yeah. person. It wasn't yeah. just for when he was on TV. It right. was for all the time. And we don't know what other things were in there. But, but the point yeah. is, this is fraud. This isn't just simply using legal loopholes like depreciation. Right, uh, which is perfectly valid, and there are actually good reasons why you use depreciation. And by the way, if you sell your property and you make money on it, the taxes get clawed back. You end up having to pay uh, mm -hmm. all of the advantages that you took early on. But this is actual fraud. This is making up things that you are not entitled to. And I think he should be pursued when he leaves office. Um, he also, Bill Galston, um, paid his daughter, Ivanka, apparently, looks like he paid her as a consultant, even though she was um, a uh, uh, an employee. So, oops, that's not allowed. Uh, Newsflash. <laughs> Trump breaks tax code, comma, practices nepotism. Now, <laughs> let's go on. Let's go on to some real news. I mean, I, you know, uh, you know, my my wife, before she became a law professor, uh, uh, practiced tax as a lawyer. So <laughs> we, we read these stories with more than the usual uh, attention. Mm -hmm. uh, here are two things that stood out, or three things that stood out to me. First of all, the only uncontested business success that Trump has ever had is, his, is The Apprentice. He made hundreds of millions of dollars from that show. That's amazing fact number one. Amazing fact number two is that he poured all, almost all of the money that he made from The Apprentice into golf courses and lost his shirt. You know, he's lost $60 million at Doral alone. Mm -hmm. uh, so his golf, his golf obsession has turned out to be a complete business disaster. Although I have to say I can now understand uh, much more fully than I could before, why he was so eager to host the G7 meeting at Doral. <laughs> yes. Remember that one? Yes, I remember. Okay, but, but, but here's the real, you know, here's number three and the real stunner. And this is something that I think a good reporter or two should dig into. Yes, he has been under audit for more than a decade. Why? 
you know, because the IRS has questioned uh, the $72.9 million tax refund, refund he got, almost certainly under false pretenses, if the facts are turn out to be as alleged. Uh, according, you know, according to law and regulation, tax refunds over $2 million have to be approved by the Joint Committee on Taxation. Yeah, I had no idea about that either. Okay, the Joint Committee on Taxation has been seized of this question for nearly 10 years. And nobody Query. breathes the word. Query. <laughs> why? You know, why 10 years? Why has this been before the IRS for 10 years? I know that Trump has more lawyers than the IRS. Uh, but the established mechanisms should have ground out an answer to this question years ago. What's going on? Yeah. Somebody inquiring minds really should want to know. Yes. Excellent question. Um, so, Damon, um, one of the um, one of the questions that that people are asking is: Is there something wrong with the tax system that allows billionaires or purported billionaires to get away with things like this, or is this just simply a matter of of one guy? So, one guy who has basically been dancing on air and eventually like the figure in the cartoon who goes off the edge of the cliff and his legs keep moving, eventually he's going to fall. Um, do you think there's some, that this calls for some vast reform of our system? I mean, there are good reasons to allow people who have losses, uh, to, to, uh, defer taxation until later years when they have gains. And, uh, after all we tax profit, not loss and so forth. And, uh, but what do you, what do you think about that? Well, I, I mean, I think any one case and especially an extreme case, which I think this is, does not make great law. Uh, but you know, what law is a little different than politics. And so it's possible that this, this, uh, when it's all out in the open, which will be hastened, of course, if Trump loses, um, Eventually, yeah, it could definitely uh, give some uh, some fuel to a, a move to reform tax laws to allow less of this uh, on the part of business owners and wealthy people. But there's something especially crooked about to be a to be a real estate developer and then to be a real estate developer centered in Manhattan. You're, you're like guaranteed to be, you know, waist deep in kind of organized crime and paybacks and all kinds of stuff that, uh, that I can't frankly wrap my mind around because it's such a different reality than anything I know. And I'm not a tax lawyer, but Trump is a, is a particularly egregious outlier case, I would guess. Yeah. Most people, whether they are businessmen who make a lot of money, let alone building developers, uh, have, you know, 70 odd million dollar tax refunds given to them. And, and the things that were revealed in earlier stories in the New York Times about his taxes, about uh, claiming massive depreciation and carrying it over for 15 years so that he doesn't have to pay any new income tax. I mean, this is, he has pushed this to the absolute limit. And 
if it, it's it's I think it's for me it's less about whatever laws he might be bending to the breaking point than the reluctance, as Bill pointed out, with the IRS taking ten years to review this case. Uh, the reluctance of the authorities to actually let the hammer fall where it clearly should be falling, where when you know it, it, if you were just a small business owner who were uh, you know claiming some some slightly dodgy deductions, you probably would have been audited, and fined, and gotten in a lot of trouble long, long before this. So that's yeah. where I think it could get a little uh, a little bit of fuel in the tank for some reform down the line. David, um, th- this was the guy who ran in 2015 and 2016 as a populist. I mean, you know, he was railing against these hedge fund guys who don't pay any taxes at all. And he said he didn't think that was fair, was wrong. Right. <laughs> well, you know, to, to, to Bill's, the discussion with Bill and, or with Damon is, look, complexity is a subsidy in many ways. Mm-hmm. And and when you have the resources that that Trump has, then that complexity it works to his advantage time and time again. So yeah, one case does is a poor example for making law, but his one case does illuminate a problem with the law and the complexity of the tax code, in in my view. But yeah, I mean he, I think he, he was there was always this weird this weird dichotomy in his quote unquote populism. His folks knew that he had his own private jet. He had gold-plated, what was it, a gold-plated toilet? Yep. Um, And so they knew and reveled. They reveled in that success. but But what Trump had was this very blunt, pugilistic style that I think was really the source of that populist appeal. And the the gold-plated toilet was sort of, hey, look, somebody who says it like it is going to send to the highest levels. This is exactly the kind of person we need. When the reality is, once it's all said and done for Trump's career, I mean, if you were going to write a book, I think the best title would be The Squandering, because he's taken the, his father's inheritance, poured it into failing business enterprises. Right when the, you know, the chickens are coming home to roost, he gets the apprentice lifeline, um, does well at the apprentice for a time, gets another windfall. Wait, David, David, can I interrupt one second? Before the apprentice bailed him out, he actually was bailed out by the banks who, um, who did say to themselves, all right, you know, he's awful, but he is worth more to us alive than dead. We're going to have to keep him alive. (laughs) Right. So he's bailed out by the banks, then the apprentice. And then when, you know, he's about to have to pay the piper, he becomes president. And then what does he do as president? He squanders the economic recovery that he yep. inherited. He squanders the pandemic planning that he inherited. He's, I mean, it, it just, it's just the squandering. And you and- just said exactly what I was about to say. It's uncanny. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bill, last well, word on this. Last word reminds me of the old Wall Street joke. Yeah. How do you how do you make a small fortune? Answer yeah. begin with Start a large with a fortune. Large fortune, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, now, David, as I said at the beginning, we're, your book arrived, and I just jumped in. I mean, it is so wonderful. It's called "Divided We Fall," and um, it is it is a 
learned and and very very thoughtful and interesting uh, meditation on where we are and where we could go. So let's begin a little bit with your discussion of the um, of you were you were coming back from your um, service in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And where you had seen unbelievable, you know, sectarian hatred, um, and uh, and then you you came home and something struck you about a meeting you were invited to. Can you just set the stage for us with that? Because it really, I thought that was a really wonderful way to begin. Yeah. So I, you know, I come home from Iraq and I receive uh, a note from lawyers that I knew. Uh, lawyers that I respected, uh, had worked with in cases even, uh, please join us for a conference call that could change the course of history. Or I can't remember if those are the exact words, change the course of the election. Um, it, and and I'm, who's going to miss? I mean, I don't, I'm not a big fan of conference calls, but I mean, a <laughs> conference call that like could change history, I'm there. And so right as soon as the call starts, I learned that it's about whether or not Barack Obama was an American citizen. Um, again, this, these were people that I had known for years. I, I hung up the call. I was, and I thought, how, what, how is something that fringe reached into these people's minds? And, and then I remember looking at, you know, as the years wore on and, and, I saw that the foremost advocate for the birther conspiracy was, you know, this reality TV star rea- uh, real estate developer, Donald Trump, and said, oh, Donald Trump, um, who's going to listen to that guy? Um, mm-hmm. And the rest is history. But yeah, I, that was a really pivotal time for me. And what was pivotal about it was that what I saw in the Sunni Shia divide, and thankfully, thankfully, we're not as intense as that. It's intense, but it's not as intense as that. But what I saw that wasn't that the Sunni and Shia were not dividing over their tax plans, over parliamentary representation, although all of those things mattered, oil revenue, those things mattered, sovereignty, these things mattered. But what was fueling the rage was the the grievance, the story of grievance. It was the this Sunni person killed my nephew or this Shia person uh, killed my uncle. And if you listen to the true culture warriors now in the United States, you hear echoes of it. It's not that they want a tax, a tax bracket, you know, a taxes at this level or taxes at that level. It's look what you did to Covington Catholic. Look what you did with Kavanaugh and what you see. And then in the left will say many similar things back to the right. Look what you did to Obama with the birther conspiracy theory. And you have this narrative of grievance that is beginning to stoke division in America at a very emotional and primal level rather than an intellectual and policy level. So one of the things that you observe in the book is that not only do we have these very, very sharp divisions between Democrats and Republicans, right and left, but that they are paralleled by somewhat by geographical boundaries. Yeah. And go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that the one of the things that, again, disturbed me more as you dive into American polarization is how it's reinforced by so many different things. <laughs> so like there's Bill Bishop, the 09 book, The Big Sort. He talks about how people are clustering into these like-minded enclaves. And 
we also have increasing religious divisions. But in these increasing religious divisions, guess what? They happen to map along with the partisan divisions and the geographic divisions. Of course, in our case, it's not between religions. It's rather the religious and the non-religious. Exactly. Exactly. Even pop culture. I mean, it was really amusing to me after 2016, you know, when people were sort of in this mode of what the heck just happened? The New York Times upshot, which is just a a great aspect of the New York Times uh, site, statistical uh, part of the New York Times, uh, published all these TV maps. And it was remarkable the extent to which different TV shows mapped and charted to the red, blue, the Hillary Trump divide by county. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so you begin to see that on layer after layer after layer after layer, we are splitting religiously, geographically, politically culturally and all of this is mapping together into these big clusters of like-minded like sim, like-minded similar experience to geographic regions and with and layered on top of that is an increasing measurable amount of hate and my, the point of my book is to say we can't keep doing this we just can't keep being like this and expect that it can't that it, and just expect that either my team will win or we can do this in, without potentially catastrophic consequences. Now, in a really creative section in the middle of the book, you outline um, how a, a an actual dissolution of the union in uh, in the 21st century is not impossible to imagine. And in fact, you sketch out these scenarios that are all too believable. Um, yeah. One of them called Calexit and one called Texit. Uh, Similar situations where, you know, in the case of California, what is it that they um, decide to ban all all guns except handguns and and shotguns, and uh, and this causes uh, an uproar. And anyway, and then in Texas's case, it was abortion regulation, I believe, and yeah. um, and so you can easily see how these passions could be stirred along with the geographical boundaries being different and so forth. And uh, it gets a little hairy reading this stuff. Linda, I don't recommend you read this part of the book for you with your heart being delicate these days. I, I certainly won't read it while I'm getting my EKG. Right. I mean, you know, the, the uh, well, you know, like most of the nuclear weapons are in the South, you know. <laughs> anyway, um, it... Uh, it's it's very chilling stuff. Okay, but so your solution, and if you don't mind, I'll just spell it out because I and you tell me if I say it wrong. Sure. Uh, you say we have to back up and reinvest ourselves in true federalism, allowing a lot more scope for states and regions to go their own way on a lot of matters of policy um, without. Uh, the the federal government being involved and without the other states feeling that their their rights are being violated and you say they should you know if California wants to do a single payer system great and if Alabama wants to limit abortions to you know life of the mother exceptions they should be able to do that and uh, um, and so um, it, it, first of all did I correctly describe your your proposal and then I have a question. Yeah. So the plot, the proposed, the one word description of the proposal is pluralism. It's the, mm-hmm. the let many factions bloom of Federalist number 10 uh, of James Madison. In fact, I dedicate the book both to my wife and to James Madison, although my wife is above James Madison in, in the hierarchy. <laughs> but uh, James Madison had a vision of American pluralism where many different uh, communities could 
bloom. And we have to get back to that where there is a greater sense of um, well, a de-escalation of national politics so that every election is not the most important th- election of our lifetime, a re-emphasis on local governance, and a re-emphasis on the ability of individuals to form uh, communities and and, uh, and associations that advance their fundamental values. So less helplessness in politics. And all of that, I think, it, it's contentious, it's controversial. And somebody say, well, you're conservative. Of course you're going to say that. But one, I've had many conversations with progressives since the Trump era rose where they said, oh, I now see how a mm-hmm. extremely powerful federal government in the hands of somebody who I see as actively just a terrible human being, authoritarian human being, has this blowback on us. And, and so I, I, what I'm urging is a de-escalation of national politics, a re-embrace of actual tolerance, not sort of kumbaya tolerance, but actual tolerance that says, hey, there are things I profoundly disagree with you about, um, but you should have a home in this land. And I, I refer to a biblical verse from the book of Micah that George Washington referred to almost 50 times in his writing. And this is something that kind of got popular again, thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda and in the musical Hamilton, because he put it in there. And it's this verse that he used to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island, assuring them that they were going to have a home in this land. And he said, and it goes like this, every man shall live under his own vine and his own fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. And yes, it's a very and Washington powerful. also said in that letter, if I remember correctly, that uh, that he said, let not let's not call this tolerance. Let not let's not speak of tolerance. It's not tolerance. It's everyone has their rights. Didn't he say that in the same letter? Indeed, um, he did. There we go. Okay, now um, my question for you, David, is: um, What about uh, you know the the scenario? Say that. Um, that Alabama or some other um, very conservative state decides to limit abortion um, only to cases where the life of the mother is endangered or to, to no exceptions, let's say. Um, you, you specified in your book that the, that the scope of state action would be limited by the Bill of Rights. So they couldn't right. do anything to limit anything that's in the Bill of Rights. How do you handle that problem, though? Because people in Alabama are going to say, well, it isn't in the Bill of Rights, but, you know, the right to control my own body is a constitutional right guaranteed by the Supreme Court. And uh, you can't, you know, Alabama can't take it away from anybody. Right. Well, you know, the, 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 one of the scenarios actually is involves Roe and the overturning of Roe followed by sort of a electoral backlash, which creates, um, court packing and off we go. (laughs) And, and the the abortion issue is in just an immense flashpoint uh, in American culture and has been for a long time. And I I was actually preparing, uh, I was doing some work to put together uh, an essay for the Wall Street Journal this last weekend on how um, the Supreme Court became such a flashpoint. And I found this really interesting statement from Ruth Bader Ginsburg, actually, in a 1992 Law Review article. And she said, if Roe had been, and this was the exact word that she used, less breathtaking, that was the word, breathtaking in scope, would we be where we are today? And 
and I think that that I, you know, I've long said that 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 in fact the the breathtaking scope of Roe has helped trigger our conflicts. And what I, you know, I think that the the one of the issues about federalism is that the federal the federalist says, look, okay, there is the this other state in the country may do something that I believe is unjust or bad policy, but I'm going to have to let them do that because that is a self-governing uh, entity. And now the Bill of Rights, I like the Bill of Rights, as a pretty precise articulation of fundamental human rights. But you're right, uh, Mona, there's sort of no way around. It's going to be wrenching either way about abortion. Uh, and and a, lot of, a lot of the issues surrounding abortion aren't just the substance of it, but how it happens. And that, that was the interesting part of the Ginsburg uh, formulation is that how it happened regarding abortion was more wrenching ultimately and took an already volatile subject and made it more wrenching in the body politics. So I don't think there's any way to make abortion uh, less than an incredibly primally important issue, but there are ways to deal with it in the body politic that are more disruptive or less disruptive. Bill Galston, you wanted to discuss something. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I actually, you know, David, I actually had the chance of making my way through the PDF of your book, and I'm very grateful that I had had that chance. It sparked, it sparked all sorts of thoughts. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and let me just begin by saying that I'm, you know, I'm with you on first principles. I'm right. a passionate Madisonian. I don't, I don't yield to anyone, including you, uh, on that point. Uh, I am a philosophical and political pluralist, and have written books about that. Uh, I have, you know, I have gotten unpopular with some of my academic colleagues uh, by firmly defending the principle of tolerance. Uh, it was fashionable in academia at one point not long ago to refer to it as mere tolerance, hmm. and to which yeah. my response was, look around the world. There's nothing mere about tolerance. <laughs> right. uh, okay, but uh, here, here are some problems to reflect on. Problem number one, the modern era of the Supreme Court did not begin with Roe v. Wade. It began with Brown v. Board. And ever since Brown, there has been a running argument, to put it in constitutional language, about the privileges and immunities guaranteed to every citizen in the United States by another constitutional amendment. Uh, and uh, as you point out in your own book, Federalism ends uh, at the perimeter of the Bill of Rights, but how should we interpret the Bill of Rights? And more generally, how should we interpret the scope of constitutional principles that are binding equally on all of the states, regardless of differences in political culture? So that's that's problem that's problem number one. Uh, there is that tension there, and. Many of, many of the people uh, who think that 
You know, Roe was a jurisprudential mistake because it nationalized what should have been a state-by-state issue. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of them, by the way, in the early 1970s. Uh, but those people are unwilling to say that Brown was a mistake because it nationalized a principle. It actually nationalized a print, you know, principle that had already been nationalized in the opposite direction in Plessy in the 1890s. So that's, that's problem number one. Here's problem number two. James Madison didn't want a party system, right? His form of political pluralism presupposed that there wouldn't be political parties as we now know them, but rather shifting, you know, sh- shifting collections of interest groups who would ally with, with one other set of groups for one purpose and a very different set for another purpose. Well, he may not have wanted a party system, but it was obviously latent in the DNA of our constitutional system, and we've had it for more than 200 years, and it isn't going away, and we're only going to have two of them. And so, you know, it's not guerrilla war. It's more like World War I, where you have two massed armies. That was <laughs> not what Madison had in mind, but here we are, and it's not going away. Uh, so how, you know, how would you deal with those two structural problems? Well, let me start with the second one first. I think that, um, what, and this is something that actually Ezra Klein has written about, is that the two massed armies the problem is actually exacerbated in an interesting way in recent years. And the sense that the two massed armies, we've had the two massed armies for a while, but the armies had uh, multiple competing coalitions within them so that you know, Ronald Reagan could win the White House in 1980, not win the House, and yet have a functioning governing majority because the two the two parties were not as monolithic ideologically or as monolithic um, dispositionally as they are now. And so there were actually still multiple competing coalitions within the parties to a degree that we do not have as much now. Uh, and so, so there's something different about the red blue that we have now. That's different even than some of the red blue that we had in 80, 84, 88. Um, and on the bill of rights question, uh, this is something, look, when I say, uh, when you have a federalism that where the bill of rights is the firewall, that is not at all saying we have a federalism that is no longer contentious. We have, but what I'm talking about is a federalism that is that is sustainable, and what we know is not sustainable as a federalism is a fe- as a federalism of the Bill of Rights, and to the extent that it used to exist, where quite literally in the previous Jim Crow in the Jim Crow South, um, the First Amendment was a dead letter if you were an African American. It was just it had no meaning. Um, privileges and immunities, r- and, or equal protection, those. Words which are contentious now in the sense of what are their limits, what's the precise scope, had no meaning for an African-American in the South. And so when you're talking about having a a basic foundation of the Bill of Rights, you're not talking about a solution to controversy. You're talking about a common core set of ideas that we will fight about, that we'll fight about. But previous federalism didn't even have that as the common core set of ideas. And so, yeah, there's going to be line drawing exercises all over the place. But a basic principle that says 
that's where the line drawing is. I think it's an improvement over the current situation, which essentially says that the federal government takes what it wants to take and that federalism is not so much a principle as as it is a tactic that the party that's out of power uses to sort of defend itself momentarily until it gets into power and then tries to essentially immediately contradict all of the principles it just articulated in its own defense. And so I think that what we're talking about is a not an end of controversy or not an end of contention, but a paradigm shift that changes the terms of the controversy into contention into a way that's more sustainable within a pluralistic framework. So, so yeah, I totally understand that um, if the Bill of Rights becomes the core, then the Bill of Rights will increase in contention. But the bad federalism of the past disregarded the Bill of Rights for marginalized communities. Uh, and so one of the thing, great virtues of Brown is that it took the 14th Amendment and it essentially said, no, we're actually going to talk about equal protection, privileges, and immunities for all members of this community in a, in, uh, in a meaningful way. So Brown, I think, was uh, in many ways was the revitalization of the Constitution for marginalized Americans, a necessary step um, that in a necessary step, but not anything near like a final step towards extending the privileges and immunities to every American. But I think what we're talking about is a paradigm shift where we're still going to be having line drawing problems, um, but a necessary paradigm shift, because as it is right now in an increasingly diverse country, we have increasing centralization. And so what that means is, while every election isn't the most important election of our lifetimes, it's often only apparent in hindsight what's more important than others. In many ways, every election is electing the most powerful peacetime federal government of our lifetimes. And that is escalating the stakes and certainly the hysteria around our politics. Um, One of the things you say, one of the um, sort of... um, uh, tonal changes that you suggest will be necessary in a new um, world in which um, an, an enlivened federalism comes to be is that you say people, each side will have to pull back from this this uh, drive to dominate the other mm-hmm. um, and rule. And um, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about, you know, where, uh, you know, the, the recent decision uh, by the Republicans to push through the Amy Coney Barrett nomination fits in. I mean, is that an example of of just pushing to to rule? Uh, by the way, I'm sure you, as I, you know, think she's great, but <laughs> dot dot dot. Right. I mean, so m- one of my p- problems with the Amy Coney Barrett argument is that, and and what and and the nomination under this timing is we have to move pa- if if the only issue is power. I will do what I can do, then our politics, we, we really don't have much of a hope to escape out of this sort of Machiavellian doom loop. And, and the American people don't even like a politics like that. That's why you will often hear people who are even reversing positions that they clearly, clearly held before rarely will then say, well, I'm doing it just because I have the power to do it. So you'll do, you'll fall on a fig leaf like Lindsey Graham did when he, when he completely and shamelessly reversed his position on whether or not it's okay to confirm a justice 
in an election year, much less during the actual election itself. He said, well, you guys have done a bad thing. You guys did Kavanaugh. Yeah. So what's happening is um, it, the more that it everything devolves into a basic brute force exercise of power with no principle or prudence attached to it, the more you escalate, again, the stakes of each election, the more you escalate the emotions around a, an election, and the more that you raise the prospect of really straining our national fabric in a substantial way. So yeah, I am concerned about that regarding the Amy Coney Barrett nomination. Uh, I agree. Uh, I highly recommend that people uh, get this book, Divided We Fall. It's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful uh, examination of, of how we can end this endless uh, 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 acceleration of hostility and partisanship, negative partisanship. It doesn't require a kumbaya. It doesn't require that we all see things the same way, but merely that we let each other have space to experiment. It really would be the states being laboratories of democracy, but not so much so that everybody can see what works, but that so that everybody in their different cultural and geographical enclaves can live the way they choose. Um, and uh, I don't know if it's going to be possible. I mean, one of the possible headwinds, I think, is that, you know, every state has areas that are very conservative and areas that are very liberal. Um, and having statewide legislation, you know, that, that, that covers Birmingham, Alabama, as well as, you know, rural areas, that's, it's going to be contentious even within states. But, uh, but maybe that would be better, I think you would probably say, better than having it be such every, every um, issue like that being raised to a national emergency. Um, all right. We have um, come to the final segment, highlights and lowlights of the week. Linda Chavez, you go first. Okay. Well, uh, I have talked a lot about refugees and immigrants on the podcast, and the president made an announcement today that is a surprise to no one, but should shock us all. Uh, we have a refugee program in the United States that dates back to 1980. We have traditionally been the single most generous country in the world in accepting refugees. And in order to be uh, accepted into the United States as a refugee, you have had to go through an enormous vetting uh, system. You've had spent probably two years being vetted uh, by our State Depar uh, Department overseas. Well, in the last year of the Obama administration, the number of uh, refugees set was set at 125,000. That's been a sort of standard figure over uh, many years. Uh, last year, the president dropped that number to 18,000. And this year, he has dropped it to 15,000. But it is not even clear in that 15,000 if he will take a single refugee who is not already uh, in the United States and, and um, uh, part of our system. I mean, we've got a 1.1 million person backlog of people trying to get in under the system. And by the way, he couldn't just make this announcement today. Officially, he told a uh, his Minnesota rally last night that Biden is going to turn the Minnesota into a refugee camp overwhelming public resources, overcrowding schools, and inundating your hospitals. And of course, he invoked Ilan Omar, his favorite target, uh, who is herself a refugee from Somalia, in order to try to frighten all the people in that state. Disgraceful. So much for being a haven. 
Damon. Uh, well, my choice this week is an article from uh, the New York Times. It's, I guess it's a, an opinion column by Ferris Stockman, who's a recent addition to the New York Times editorial board. And I have to say, from the evidence of this piece, a, a, a very encouraging one. Um, it's titled The Truth About Today's Anarchists. And the subtitle is Insurrectionary Anarchists Have Been Protesting for Racial Justice All Summer. Some Black Leaders Wish They Would Go Home. And this is what I think a lot of us in the center have been waiting for um, from some of the more social justice-oriented media outlets, of which the Times is very much one these days, trying to make a distinction between those who are out protesting peacefully for the sake of police reform and other ends that I think many Americans uh, agree with and share versus the troublemakers, the people in Portland, Seattle, and other cities who kind of organize this for the sake of a kind of, uh, uh, a kind of spasm of uh, anti-civic violence, who just kind of go out and, and make trouble and uh, obviously hand Trump a, a club with which to beat uh, Democrats, liberals, progressives, and Joe Biden. So uh, I was very cheered to see it. It's a very solid piece, uh, deeply reported and worth reading. Damon, if this were, um, if we were into the uh, Fox News style of thinking, we'd say maybe it's a false flag. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, of course. <laughs> All right. Um, David French, what do you have? Uh, Bill Galston, you go, and we'll get back to David. Uh, I was fascinated to learn yesterday uh, that Mark Resco, uh, the two-term governor of Montana and a former chair of the Republican National Committee, uh, announced his intention of, of voting for Joe Biden. The reason that was interesting was that he is the fifth former Republican governor to have endorsed Joe Biden in recent months. The others being Christine Todd Whitman, John Kasich, Rick Snyder, and Tom Ridge. Uh, and this raises the following question, which I will just leave on the table. Will history see the 2020 election as, uh, as an analogy to the 1896 election, you know, which was the last stand of an America uh, that was becoming a minority America, uh, uh, where agriculture was giving way uh, to the industrial economy, you know, where rural areas and small towns were giving way to the big cities, uh, where traditional religion was giving way to a more urban uh, and tolerant sensibility. Uh, are we witnessing a quiet realignment where an entire portion of the Republican Party is, is deciding that it cannot live with what the new core of the Republican Party has become. This is also the first time I can, it's certainly in my memory, and I think maybe in everyone's, that 
the uh, I, such a record number of former officials of the current administration have also come out and endorsed the president's opponent. Um, that is unprecedented. All right, uh, David French, do you have something? Or and if not, that's totally fine. The guest is not required to. <laughs> I, I have two quick things. The low okay, light. Great. I have a low light with stand back and stand by comment uh, about mm. the Proud Boys. I think that was anytime you're taking a hate a hate group and you're giving them a slogan, um, that is not a condemnation. <laughs> um, the highlight goes to. Maybe the most contentious thing that I've ever written, um, certainly generating an enormous amount of blowback, was a couple of years ago, I wrote and definitively declared that LeBron James was the GOAT, the greatest of all time. <laughs> and the highlight is seeing the Lakers come to the finals and help me build my case for LeBron. <laughs> so I've enjoyed that. Um Eat dirt, David. Michael. <laughs> right. I don't know if you remember this, but you and I were once on a little jitney heading to an airport. Uh, uh, I think it was in Aspen. And uh, and you mentioned the name of some athlete and I didn't know who it was. And I've never seen a look of more contempt <laughs> in anyone's face. I'm, I'm sure it was pity, Mona. It was it was, pity. It, was, it was It was affectionate confusion. That's what it was. <laughs> All right. Um, well, mine, uh, my last item is, um, about something that we've talked about a few times on this podcast. It's just in the past week, it has come out that there is not going to be a release of the Durham report, or at least that's what Maria Bartiromo is reporting. And I haven't seen it countermanded. Um, this is something that the MAGA world has been eagerly anticipating as the October surprise that would sink the Biden campaign. It was a, not that that was a reasonable expectation, mind you, but, um, but Durham, of course, was assigned by Bill Barr to investigate the investigators uh, regarding the um, Russia attempt to uh, manipulate the election in 2016. They, they, it was advertised as bringing all kinds of indictments and various people, you know, the MAGA people were antis eagerly anticipating uh, James Comey and others being let off in handcuffs. Well, that's not going to happen before the election. Um, but... Perhaps, uh, as a consolation prize, the um, head of DNI, the director of national intelligence, John Radcliffe, somebody who had previously no experience in the intelligence world, um, has released a document that he says shows that Hillary Clinton was part of some conspiracy to blame Trump, for, uh, to, to uh, link the Trump campaign to the Russia meddling in the election. And this is so, first of all, it is so wrong on so many levels. It just has to be noticed. Okay. First of all, the director of national intelligence is supposed to be nonpartisan. He is not supposed to be leaking documents to help the president or any other candidate for office. That's the first violation of, of uh, good governance, uh, governance standards. The second thing is that it is very likely that this piece of evidence, so-called, is Russian disinformation itself. Um, Radcliffe had said that there were severe doubts about its authenticity before. 
Um, and so that is the place that we have come to in America where the head of the, you know, the man who oversees all of the intelligence gathering um, agencies in the U.S. government is actually releasing possible Russian disinformation to help the president and hurt his opponent. It is almost banana republic stuff. Well, we want to thank you all for listening. David French, thank you so much for joining us. It was wonderful. And uh, we will be back next week as we are every week. And thank you one and all. <music>